Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now, cue the music. Hello, welcome to the 210th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Dre Babinski, Meet or Whatever Movies, Seth Jurgen, and Jeff Bearhand. I'm Matt Enloe. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we have the world-famous Alex Ferrari on the podcast. He is the creator of Indie Film Hustle. He puts the hustle in Indie Film Hustle. Yes. He is a person that does many, many, many things, aside from having made quite a few movies, written quite a few books, taught quite a few people... Everything he's learned about filmmaking, about distribution, about where independent filmmaking is going. And I will say, I had a little pause when we were talking to him about having him back on because of all the people I know, he's been on the most podcasts. And he has a lot to say, and I was a little worried that if you heard him on a different podcast... You'd think, oh... I can skip this episode. And I didn't want that to happen, but I feel like we really put the brakes on some of his philosophies and really dug deep and asked questions. And because of that, if you have heard Alex on another podcast, I think it's very much worth listening to him on this podcast because we really kind of dig into what he's saying, what his philosophy is, and try to throw some roadblocks in the momentum that is Alex Ferrari that I actually think worked and ended up in a really good conversation Normally, we record our intros kind of right after we have the conversation with the guest, but because of timing issues, um, we're recording this one the morning that it comes out. And I've spent the last week thinking about a lot of what Alex had to say, and I think I put on my skepticism hat a little bit. And I stand by most of my the points I was trying to make, but I think that sometimes I will get a little obstinate and like, if someone's really emphatic one way, I'll dig my heels in on like a, the opposite point of view even if I don't believe it and I feel like thinking back about some of the things that we talked about I think that the fundamentals of what Alex was saying and what I was trying to say I think really align very closely and that it really comes down to just opening up your eyes to being a smart producer in addition to being a smart filmmaker and that you can't just throw your hands up in the air and say well I'm an artiste and that's that you know uh we get into it it's fun yeah he's um passionate dude at the end of the day his best summary of what he's saying is that a lot of people forget about the business side of show business and with this very changing landscape you need to be on top of what the business is today and not what you learned in film school 10 years ago Mm -hmm. because it changes at a breakneck speed which brings me to a quick next topic the world is still (laughs) going through this global pandemic 
it's definitely rocked our industry and wanted to say thank you to all our patrons, our Patreon patrons that are still giving to us. Uh, we know a lot of you have had to reduce your patronage or eliminate it, which we totally get. If you are not employed right now, we are more than ha happy for you to pull out of Patreon. But uh, the ones that are still there, we really appreciate it. We know it's not a ton of money that you're giving to the podcast, but it does make us feel inspired to keep going. And so if you're interested in checking out our Patreon page, it's patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. If you are trying to figure out how to pay your rent, please do not worry about it. Yeah, yeah. we'll, we'll talk to you in a couple of months. We'll still be here no matter what, guys. Yeah, um, but I just wanted to send an extra thank you to the people that are on there because it means a lot. And when we do actually have a live event, when the world is not plagued by coronavirus anymore, then we will have you all come early to the event because you're a patron. Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks so much, guys. And also, um, we're in the process of rolling out some new merch options for people, which I think will be really fun. Um, T-shirts are going to be on their way. Dude, just shoot at face masks. How did we not think about that? Uh, it's yeah, just, they'll be ready in about eight months. It's your beard or months. my beard. <laughs> and you can put it on your face. Perfect. Um, but yeah, so if you want to be a part of the Patreon community, um, we're also going to maybe host a few meetups and things in the near future as well, just to kind of keep people communicating with one another and kind of keep everybody's spirits up and just remember that uh, filmmaking can happen a lot of different ways. And I have one final thing, actually. Yes. Um, we are doing a, a uh, check-in with all sorts of our favorite filmmakers um, to see how they're holding up in the coronavirus. And I thought... I would love to hear from you, the listener. So if you want to leave us a voicemail and just tell us a little bit about how your life has changed, anything you've learned, any tips that you want to pass along specifically about filmmaking and how you're keeping your practice up and your yourself staying sane and fun and creative and inspired, or maybe, you know, giving yourself permission to not feel inspired for a little while. Drop us a line at 2626-SHOOT1. Leave us a voicemail. We're going to put a few of our favorites together into that episode. And then, Matt, rumor on the street is that you are releasing your short film to the public soon. That's right. You know, I was just thinking, like, what does Frozen 2... What are the other movies that Trolls came Trolls World <laughs> what does, Tour. What does Frozen 2 Trolls World Tour, but not Wonder Woman have in common with my short film daniel craig is he not in any of those and also not in your short film you know we'd have to double check on trolls too oh. <laughs> listen who yeah. knows people have to cash checks every once in a while uh but yeah they're all online and available to the public so i figured we had a few more festival screenings that are kind of going by the wayside and i thought well what a nice time to go ahead and release a a fun short film about pubes about two people uh, aging together aging together trapped in one location if you're a regular listener to the podcast you'll know that i shot a short kind of a while ago now um it played at austin film fest and sidewalk and it's now available on my vimeo and you can go check it out at mrmadonlo.com as well but it, it'll be kind of floating around so uh drop me a comment uh take a look Tell me you love it. Tell me you hate it. Uh, and thanks for your support, everyone. I'm going to check that out, even though I've already seen it. Yeah. But I'm just going to gonna make your Vimeo view counts go crazy. Yeah. 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 Just hit auto refresh for me if you wouldn't mind, Doran. That'd be great. Sure. Thanks, buddy. And with that, here's our conversation with Alex. Alex Ferrari here on the Just Shoot It Pod. 
biggest hustler of the indie <laughs> film scene. I appreciate that, guys. Mr. Indie thanks, Film um, Hustler. Thanks for having stuff. me back. Yeah, man. Welcome back. Well, originally we were going to have you on to talk. I wanted to talk about um, not just the uh, your new book, Rise of the mm-hmm. Film Entrepreneur. Did I get it right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You uh, man, you're actually nailing it. Hey. And most people are like film to 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 put you, and it is a mouthful. Sure, it is rough. Until you, until you, until you just say entrepreneur, film entrepreneur, entrepreneur, film entrepreneur, and then and then it kicks. You just have to yeah remember how to say it. Oprah, Uma, Uma, Oprah. Exactly. That's a deep cut, man. Anyway, so yeah, we originally we were going to talk about your new book, Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, and then also you were kind of on the forefront of some kind of crazy self-distribution news <laughs> that I wanted to talk to you yeah. about. Um, distributor. The distributor yeah. kind of fallout that, that was pretty rough. and mm-hmm. Not a thing that we really talked about at all on the show. Uh, and, okay. and then a pandemic happened. So we've got quite a bit to catch up on. <laughs> <laughs> this time, I mean, we were talking about it off air, but it's like, you know, we're going back to the place where, you know, it's a one-man crew or a very, very, very small crew to make something. I've been living in that space for a long, long time. Uh, and, you know, there was an article, I think, in Variety or Hollywood Reporter was talking about how the micro-budget film is starting to eat in or compete with these bigger dramas that, you know, are like the five, 10 million, $20 million dramas uh, because there's just so much more competition now. And that's kind of like a better business model. Um, and that's kind of like, wait, this is pre pandemic. No, this is current pandemic. This is, this is like, I, it wait, just got micro released. Budget film. Yeah. Micro- in, during a pandemic. No, no. Well, they are saying that that's where the, before the pandemic, the, the article was released like two days ago, if I'm not mistaken. And okay. then it's about how micro budget has been coming, kind of becoming more of the norm as opposed to as, as the outliers, mm-hmm. which is what I've been yelling from the top of the mountain for a long time. Right. But in, in the context that nobody is allowed to leave their house. Uh, obviously, obviously, though, I'm sure somebody <laughs> is shooting somewhere. I cannot I, I promise you that empty L.A. streets are not being uh, ignored. Someone's out there shooting stock footage. Uh, they're shooting a one man. I saw there was a quarantine short film that was just made. It's like it was just a like a one man crew with one actor running around quarantined areas shooting. We're well, crazy, man. Filmmakers are nuts. <laughs> How important do you guys think it is to be creating content now? Um, you know, for the next three months at yeah. home as much as possible. Uh, outside, no. You know, if you could do stuff in your backyard, if you could do stuff in a controlled environment that is within the quarantining situation where you don't want to make yourself um, endanger yourself or other people around you, then yeah, make as much content as you can, uh, write as much as you can, educate your mu- as much as you can. But to go out and like try to set up a micro-budget shoot in this, ins- in this insane environment uh, is, is irresponsible and just not very smart as a general right. statement. Well, but I, I think, Oren, what you're getting at is more, you know, we, we have like a lot of friends who are doing the coronavirus short that's effectively like with an iPhone or whatever, literally whatever mm-hmm. gear they have at home with yeah. their partner or roommate or like using kind of like creative... Uh, uses of maybe like zoom Zoom or skype or uh, you know we saw a great uh, ben berman did a great short um where he used cameo and had like all these crazy cameos from different people like different celebrities i don't know how much he spent on it but you know like thinking outside the box never breaking actual quarantine but still being creative and commenting on the kind of collective experience that we're all having Mm -hmm. i think i think is interesting and i think is worthwhile i think that like 
um, to me personally, there's a sweet spot of like the film that is commenting on the thing in the moment quickly and is charming in that it is clearly made by the people made under these circumstances, basically. But I don't know that that's necessarily helpful career-wise beyond sharing things on Facebook and people being like, oh, man, look how clever Alex is. That was... Yeah, so funny and charming. It's a weird time, guys. It's a weird time. I think there's a fine line, though, between really kind of cinematic short film that like Tim Wilkine made, or even uh, so our other friend, previous guest Tim, made made a short about a couple that is trying to finish a puzzle in the time of coronavirus and going nuts because they can't find the the final piece. Um, and it's very like apropos to now. They mentioned Tiger King. They mentioned Airdrop. Mm-hmm. There's a fine line between that and like TikToks, you know, like here's a funny thing. Here's a guy stealing toilet paper. Here's a, mm-hmm. a girl doing that, you know, like. I, um, And I think the TikToks of the world really are, you know, they might go viral. They probably have a much higher chance of going viral, getting millions of people to send mm-hmm. them all over the world. Like I'm, my family in Israel is like literally sending me hilarious videos like every second on WhatsApp. I have to like block them all because <laughs> it's too much stuff. But. But their their humor in Iran and in China and in L.A. is like for the first time ever, like all the same. We're all telling the same jokes because we're experiencing yeah. the same thing. So I think right. that, that thing is very interesting. But from a career standpoint, I think if you are like a Tim Wilkheim or a Ben Berman and you make something that's kind of actually smart and well-written and cinematic and goes beyond a one joke setup, I, I think, you know, agents are at home, producers are at home, writers are at home. I think this is the time where someone that doesn't have an agent, that's not rep, that's not in any guilds, can make something really great, put it on their Facebook. And if even just the friends of their friends of their friends are kind of like Mm -hmm. connected in the Hollywood industry, the right people could see it and talent could be found. And I know my wife's my wife's an actress. Her manager right now is kind of looking for new talent. Um, I just had a call with like the production company whose roster I'm on on Monday. And they're like, hey, can you shoot like a one minute spec? thing like we can we would love to put something on the end of your reel like 30 seconds one minute that you made during the quarantine you know so once we're out of this it's like hey and look at what he made while we were all locked up um you know so i think there are things that you could do but 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 you have to fight the funk which is like this desire to not do anything or or and we're we're on web chat i can't i can't smell how bad you smell um Right. <laughs> Ooh, sorry. We sorry, don't have that technology that yet. We don't have I that could, technology yet. I couldn't help myself. Yeah, I, but I think I I totally agree, Oren. I think that the the thing that's tricky and challenging, right? And I think this was getting to what you were trying to say, Alex. Is like I think there's a difference between going out and trying to make your own film as though the quarantine isn't happening, and then there's the world where you're making something as a comment on the quarantine, right? Like being that one man band or one woman band, like doing it yourself and making that part of the experience, I think is a thing that's special and unique that you only get to do now. And also frankly, kind of like makes up for the reasons why you don't have, you know, sound or hair and makeup or something like that, you know, like you're much more forgiving. Yeah. Well, there's no question about it. I, I, I'm coming at it from a completely different perspective, whereas anything that I would create during this time, I gave up on trying to impress people in Hollywood uh, a while ago. 
So um, I don't, I'm not looking for an agent. I'm not looking for a manager. That is a, a route to go and that's fine. I'm more into the self-sustaining world where I create content or product where I can sell it through my own revenue streams and create a kind of film entrepreneurial uh, situation where any content that I create now, I can monetize myself. And I do truly believe that is where we're all going eventually. I don't think the Hollywood system is ever going to go away and one, it will always transform and, sh and change no matter what happens. It, it's a very resilient business, but it is drastically going to be different at the end of this. And it will never recover in the same way that it will never be what it was a month ago. It, it just won't. The, the landscape will change so dramatically. That's what a lot of people are saying. Curious to know specifically think is going to change, but just to mm -hmm. dig into something you just said a second mm -hmm. ago about like, you don't care about getting a manager and agent mm -hmm. or all that stuff. You've had that stuff. You've worked on huge movies. You've worked on tiny movies. Mm -hmm. You've done everything. But if you made a short film mm -hmm. right now, that was awesome and poignant and interesting in some mm -hmm. way. And like Will Ferrell saw it mm -hmm. and like wanted to be in your next movie just because he's a fan of the way you think. Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be awesome. Absolutely. Right? And it's not about us. I'm not trying to not, I'm not trying to dismiss that. It's not my, it's not my end goal. And that's mm -hmm. the difference. If I'm not creating something for someone to, you know, like waiting for someone to choose me or to give me the power to do what I love to do. If I create the work and that work is put out there and someone sees it, I'm taking that call from Will Ferrell. Like I always say, I'll take the call from Kevin Fahey any day of the week. Um, that's that's not a problem. I'm not trying not to do that, but that is not my goal. I think where a lot of filmmakers fail or have a lot of struggle is that when they create the work, that is the only end goal where it should be one of multiple end goals that you're going after, meaning that you're creating it for expression as an artist, trying to generate revenue, you know, just have your outcomes set up differently. But yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100% or like if, if you put something out, that's cool. It's cool. And if someone looks at it and a manager, look, if a manager or agent from CAA decides to call me like, Hey, I saw that thing you did. Uh, can you come in for a meeting? I'll be like, yeah, that, that, that'd be awesome. You're like, there's a quarantine. <laughs> and obviously, uh, here's my send Skype. Send me a Zoom link. Uh, yeah, yeah. He sent me a Zoom link. Like, don't you think, yes, there is like, no one's on the streets. Let's shoot, you know, 29 days later or whatever in the middle of like Sunset Boulevard <laughs> right. or the 101 freeway. There's there's that way of taking advantage of the quarantine, which is a very like kind of physical, mm -hmm. like uh, direct way of taking advantage of the mm -hmm. reality that we're living in. But the other thing and the thing that I see this being more comparable to is like, the writer's strike we all lived through that mm -hmm. in 2008 that's when i got my first manager i made a short about the writer's strike police thing. Right. these two guys that go around to different coffee shops and see if anyone's using final draft they arrest them you know it's a good joke um and so it's awesome it was only seen by a few thousand people but they were all these you know what matt calls hollywood viral um the right people to see it mm -hmm. and it got me a few meetings and i got a manager out of it and i think now it's not so much that managers and agents are looking for talent but it's it's the first time in my life where like the content creation is like, it's truly democratic. It's like whatever, I mean, it's not truly, obviously some people have resources, other people don't. Some people have own Alexas and like mm -hmm. everything they would need and live with 40 people that are amazing cast actors, yeah. you know, but everyone right now has, is kind of really on equal footing in terms of their resources. It's like we have where we live, we have the people we're quarantined with that could be, just you by yourself or up to like five or six people. Mm -hmm. You have your phone probably or your laptop. And those are the things go. It's like the 48 hour film festival for the entire world. Right. And so you're not going to be noticed because you have a giant budget or doing crazy visual effects or 
famous actors or tons of marketing. It's this is a time where whatever you make is like just judged on its face as what is this person? What is Alex Ferrari doing? What is Matt Enler mm. doing? You know, what are they taking 24 hours of their time and making and putting out into the world? And that's maybe like the rawest version of who they are. So I don't know. I think it's interesting in that way. Oh, the other thing that is un- unheard of in my lifetime is that everyone's landlocked. Everyone's at home. So they, you know, they are online. They are looking for their things. Um, they have to fill their days up with stuff that they normally would be doing at home. And then we're talking about the, those right people in Hollywood. If you're trying to, you know, get some attention, this is the time. This is a very, very unique window of time where some of that could happen. There could be some lightning striking there. But with that said, 2008 and 2020, as far as the landscape is concerned, the competition is so much more. There's so much more content. There's so yeah, many. We knocked out all those travel vloggers. Devin's super tramps out here. Touche, touche, sir, touche. Um, but yeah, but you know what I'm saying. Generally speaking, there's still a tremendous amount of competition. So it, it's it's an interesting time, but is there an opportunity? Absolutely. But it's just such a weird time to be alive right now as a filmmaker in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue, just in terms of the, the competition angle, I feel like many years ago, like by, by the time we had the advent of streaming, but I would argue even before that, even like in home video, you basically have an unwatchable number of television shows and movies to consume, right? Like no one will ever watch everything they want to watch. No one will ever mm-hmm. even watch every great movie that we all agree is incredible, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's a person out there who hasn't seen Jaws. There's a person out there who hasn't seen Star Wars. There's a person out there who like literally hasn't seen the biggest friggin' movies in the world, right? So to me, we already hit that critical mass of like competition is already moot. You know what I mean? There's already so many great things out there that the only thing that you can compete with is whether or not you can get someone's attention, right? And who knows why people decide to watch movies or not. But like, I guess I'm saying whether the, there's two lifetimes worth of movies to watch or a billion lifetimes worth of bo- movies to watch, it doesn't really matter. You know, we've already hit that that threshold. What you're saying is two different competitions. You know, uh, me making a movie here is not competing with Jaws. Um, and I would and argue it th- is, though. Well, it is and it isn't because if you're, who's your demographic? Who are you going after? You're going after the general market? Absolutely. You're competing with Jaws, Star Wars, and everything else that's ever been made. But if you're going after management agents, people in Hollywood uh, that are at home right now trying to get their attention, you're not competing against Jaws per se. You're competing against other people trying to do what you're doing. So I agree with you. There's always going to be competition. I mean, look, there's so much, so much stuff that's been created. uh, And uh, this is like the first time that production has stopped. I don't, this has never happened ever in the history of, of our industry that everything just stopped. Even 9-11 was like, you know, a week or two and there was still production going on somewhere in the world. It's, it is just locked down completely. Such an interesting time. And by the way, on a side note, if we can discuss Tiger King, I'm more than happy to. I'm dying to speak to somebody about Tiger (laughs) King. Um, Please. Uh, (laughs) Throw a rock. (laughs) <laughs> and you'll find someone that will talk want to talk to you about Tiger King <laughs> by the way one of the producers lives a block away from here and I wanted oh, to talk God to bless. him about it but he was like keep your distance <laughs> yeah. he's got a hungry tiger in his backyard um, but, but look I mean I think I think the people who are self-sufficient in this space right now right like if you already own and know how to use a camera and you already own a couple cheap lights 
and you're a solid writer, I think and you're a, a good actor as well. I think that's really helpful. Those skills are going to carry through and like maybe not be as important when you're helming, you know, a 200 person crew, you know, it's, it's not a, a hand in hand sort of thing, but I think that like, it's still going to take resilience and resourcefulness to make anything in the first place. And so I don't mm-hmm. think there'll be a, it's not coincidental that people who are making good things under quarantine make good things outside of quarantine in yeah. general. <laughs> yeah. And my corollary to that would just be, you don't, if you're not a good actor or you're not great with the camera or you don't even have a good camera, like to me, this is the time about focusing on what you are really good at. I just hate myself on camera. I'd rather edit footage that I find. I feel more confident as an editor than as an actor. So I'll try to lean into that skill. And during this time where most of what you're sharing is on social media, you're not sharing a 90 minute movie, you're sharing a one or two minute movie, you can really focus on Mm -hmm. what you're good at um, when you're deciding what to make. But I was curious, just getting back to the previous question I had, Alex, what do you think is going to be different once we're all back in business, back on set? I've been saying for for a while now um, that I feel that the industry in general has been a house of cards for a long time. I feel that the the business model of general Hollywood has been puffed up by foreign sales like China, um, especially the box offices. If you look at the numbers, uh, remember when the U.S. was the biggest market and then foreign was like 30. I remember when it was 70, 30 U.S. and now it's 30, 70 U.S. being the 30 and the 70s being foreign. Right. But that that's like a very macro. It is very macro. This whole thing. But th- like thinking of it, like knowing, again, our audience is very much your audience, like filmmakers that are trying to figure out what they can do, like as opposed to what Kevin Feige is doing. There's TV now. There's digital stuff. There's like all these other outlets. And I don't see China dominating our TV production. I don't see them dominating Quibi. I don't see, you know, I feel like a lot of the old stuff that is always important to people, good writing, good acting, celebrities, you know, getting people to watch your thing. Yes, in the box office and how theatrical is driven, it's a whole different conversation about that business. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, um, like what we as filmmakers are doing as middle class filmmakers, how is that right? Like, well, yeah, well, sure. So I understood the macro. So I was kind of setting it all up. So the macro is the big stuff, but that does trickle down. So as independent filmmakers, um, it's kind of the reason why I wrote my book because um, a lot of filmmakers have been taught this in film school, and it's been taught by the industry that. Your job as a filmmaker is just to be creative and just to create your art. And then you hand it over to a distribution company or you hand it over to somebody else to handle the business side of it. And then you'll eventually get a check. Those days are so gone and they're getting worse and worse as the days go by. And now with this thing, I think it's just accelerated it all. So the whole industry is changing so rapidly that all these filmmakers, actors, writers, directors, they're all focusing on the old system that is crumbling around them. And they're not really noticing that Rome is burning. And everybody else that's kind of figured it out or seeing ahead of the curve, which is where I think we're all going towards, is if you do not become a film entrepreneur, if you do not become a self-sufficient business for your brand, for your content, and able to generate multiple revenue streams from your content, you won't survive in the new landscape. There'll always be the studio system. There'll always be people working in the studio system. There's going to be television. But the olden days of even television, man, look at the budgets. 
the budgets, you know, Game of Thrones, that's a, a very unique space where they're spending how much? 10 million an episode or some crazy thing like that. That's insane. But they're I, but that's gonna stop you for a yeah, second sure. there because you know, you sent me your book. Thanks so much for that. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that I loved it. If you read one part of Alex's book, the introduction is just so good. It's like <laughs> film history 101. You guide people through everything they're thinking and why it's so wrong, but in a nice, gentle way. I, I really <laughs> I like it. I actually texted Matt. I was like, oh man, this intro is actually pretty good. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, you should read it. Um, but, uh, but not to push the premise of your book aside, but like, yes, you know, if a filmmaker came to me and complained about all the things you just said, like China's paying for everything, Sony's this, blah, 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 I'd be like, yeah, don't think about that. Like, write an incredible pilot and pitch it to Netflix, pitch it to Quibi, pitch it to True TV. There's still budgets that are, you know, and, and yes, you're saying, oh, the budgets are so small. Yeah. None of us are going to cry about $300,000 for an episode. The whole system, it is changing. And I agree with you. You, you can still pitch to Netflix, but you know, the problem with doing that is that you're now competing against a thousand other pitches that Netflix is getting. There's too much content or too much options for content and only a handful of outs, uh, resources. And yes, if you could get it, it's the lottery ticket. If you can get a, t- a job or a, a pilot at at Tubi, at Netflix, at Hulu, at any of these streaming, there's still only a handful of them out there. There's probably, you know, if you look around, how many of those places are there and how many new guys are they actually going to look at to take a risk on stuff that isn't seasoned? There's just so much that needs to happen for that deal to go through. And I agree, if you're super talented. There's no doubt that it's hard. I think everyone knows that. But Hulu is doing these horror movies. Each month is a different horror movie. There, I don't know what the budget, one or two million. There, yeah, there yeah, are yeah. opportunities mm-hmm. for new filmmakers. Yeah, there, there's always there's always opportunities for new filmmakers. I guess I I really just take issue in general with the the argument basically that like, it's very competitive and you have to be super talented. Like if that's a problem, then yeah, maybe think Right. The film entrepreneur also has to be super talented. And, and it is super competitive. Competing. Yeah. Well, the difference is, but the big, the big difference is, um, and look, the industry has been competitive since Chaplin's days. I mean, right. it's, that's it's, what it's I'm just, saying. It, 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 it's, it's competitive. That's what we period. signed up for. Right. But the, but the thing yeah. is that what we signed up for is not what is around today. The landscape is so much more different. There is so much more, oppor- there's no, no, more opportunity, but there's also so much more competition, meaning that there's arguably hundreds, if not hundred, at least hundreds of different outlets for content for you to create. But there's just millions of people trying to get into those same amounts of content. So what I've decided to do, because I chased that dragon for 20 odd years, I said, I'm going to opt out guys and I'll still play in the game. And when they call me, I'm there and and, and I'll still go, but I, I can't allow myself to only focus on that one way of doing it. I'm open to it. It's a revenue stream. It is an opportunity. But if I put all my eggs in that basket, I'm setting myself up for failure. Whereas as a film entrepreneur, you're building something up yourself that you control. You're not waiting for someone to give you permission. You're not waiting for someone to go, you now shall direct. It's it's a, it, like, I hate, having to pitch and go to studios and, you know, and do, and do the, the pitches and the pilots and the, and the movies and chasing money. I've done all of that. And I got so exhausted with it. After 20 years, I woke up one day and I said, I'm 40 years old and I still haven't made my first feature and I'm good. I, I'm tomorrow. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to be 70 and I'm going to still be playing this game. 
And it's okay if that's where you want to go, understand the game and understand the rules that you're going after. I, I just had to opt out of it and I had to figure something else out for myself. So instead of trying to get into a party that I, I wasn't invited to or there's just too many people at the door, I decided to make my own party. And that's where I created what I've created with Indie Film Hustle and all the things I've done. But now I have the freedom to go out and shoot a movie whenever I want. Sure, it might not be at a three, four, five hundred million dollar budget, but I'm okay with that for that kind of story. And when I want to go after that kind of budget, I have more of a base now where I could go out and try to raise money. I have a, I have a business that I can fall back on. Um, and I have multiple revenue streams that I can control that are outside the industry, which is very, very uh, important in this whole process. So maybe let, let's kind of walk through what you're really pitching, Alex, because it, mm -hmm. it sounds to me like you're, you're after something a little bit different than a traditional independent filmmaker right because like mm -hmm. I, I think you know you could look at this and say well yeah i'm an independent filmmaker i go out and fundraise and you know make a small amount mm -hmm. get a small amount of money go make the movie and then distribute it right like wh in mm -hmm. what ways are you advocating something different so like oren said in, in the beginning of the book i kind of set up everything that a filmmaker would do the traditional way of going down the, the road and go and the traditional way of going down the road is you, you go to film school or you learn how to make a movie. You find money from somewhere, whether that be uh, your parents, your friends and family, or you are, if you're lucky enough to get investors, great. And now you go out and you make your movie. And now after a year or whatever long it takes you to make that movie, then all you do is hand it over to a distributor, hoping that someone's going to pay you up front for that movie, that's going to recoup your budget at least. And then you're going to get paid something in the back end. That's a really great example, a really wonderful, rosy, Pollyannic way of looking at things. And in the olden days, that was a much more feasible option. In today's world, that model is so broken and so gone, it's not even funny. It doesn't work anymore. Does it work for some? Absolutely. There's always outliers. If you go to Sundance, if you go to South by, are there opportunities for, you know, A24 to pick you up? Sure. But A24 is basically the Sundance of distribution. They pick 12 movies out a year, 13 movies out a year, and that's basically it. And then you look at these other distributors who were remaining nameless, who are popping out 40 to 50 titles a month. All, and they're paying nothing for them. And they basically set these contracts up in a way that these filmmakers will never see a Is dime. Is this like a gravitas type of uh, it will It will remain nameless. Company? It will remain nameless. Um, not, not, well, I mean, but it's, it's a style. Well, a style, yes. It, not yes. not sure, them, sure. but that, yeah. that a size style. company. Yeah, that size, that size distributor. So yeah, I, I think that, that that model is something that our listeners are familiar with and certainly like is fraught with, you know, uh, challenges and like maybe that's going to work out for you and maybe that's not. What are you advocating for? So What's what I'm difference? advocating for, so the difference is as opposed to trying to tr create a project um, and then find an audience for it, you find an audience first and then you create a project for that audience. And that's the big difference. Uh, the, whole, the, the whole concept of being a film entrepreneur is understanding a niche audience. As I, I say, the riches are in the niches. Because if you understand who you're making the movie for, what story you're trying to tell. So, uh, so understanding your audience and who you're going to go after uh, with your with your product, not only with your product, but with your art. And this model, by the way, works with art films as it does with horror films, as it works with action films, however it is. But you just have to niche down. So I use the example of... Um, of a, a romantic comedy. So let's say tomorrow, and I know a lot of people listening out there, you know, they might have a romantic comedy and they're going to make a broad romantic comedy. Uh, that's, you know, boy meets girl, all craziness ensues and that's it. It's broad. 
they have maybe if you're if they're lucky they have a little bit of some sort of star power meaning maybe some tv actors or people that some maybe some faces they recognize but they can't really afford to get you know real star power meaning you know 10 million 20 million dollar kind of actors so now they they put this, these movies that they got this movie done it cost them let's say about let's say half a million bucks which is fairly low budget for the kind of movie they're trying to make so they make a half a million dollar romantic comedy, and then they go out to a distribution company. They go to AFM. Well, they go out, out to the out to the the festivals, and the festivals really aren't really into romantic comedies. They, you know, Sundance doesn't generally play romantic comedies. Neither do any of the big other other festivals that actually matter in the sense for attention or distribution or acclaim. There's only about five or six of them in the world that really do anything to the bottom line as far as money is concerned. And even that's waning more and more as the years go by. So you go then to AFM or Cannes and you go to that film market and you try to you make some deals with, you make some meetings with some distributors and you you send them the movie and they're like, okay, look, you know, uh, we'll take it. You get no MG, which is a minimum guarantee because we can't, we can't afford it. We got like 400 other romantic comedies in the back. So um, we're going to take your movie. We're going to need it for a 15 year term. And you're like, 15 years? They're like, okay, 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 10 years. So now you sign a 10-year term. And uh, like I said in the book, you you have Uncle Bob look at it. Uncle Bob's an attorney, a real estate attorney uh, who who looks at it. And he really doesn't understand the, the nuances of a distribution contract. And within that distribution contract, they they throw in a couple, a bunch of different little tricks of the trade that they have to the point where you will never get a dime. And in the first case is once you sign that contract, you get six months later, you get your first report. And you're like, the movie made $70,000. And and you're like, holy cow, 70,000. Well, it's not the 500,000 I need, but you know, and it's a 70-30 sure. split. So Right, right. Uh, I'll cut to the chase. That person is screwed, right? Pretty much, they did, yeah. They at didn't the end make of that, any of their money, the, right? Nope, and, and they've so, lost their movie for for 10 years. Right, so, so they, they lost them. Don't, yeah. don't do that. Right. You. So then instead of making it a broad romantic comedy, you, let's say, make it a vegan chef movie. I've been talking about this vegan chef movie for a long time. So instead of just a general romantic comedy, you have a vegan chef who meets a meat eater barbecue champion. And uh, they come together and all hell breaks loose. And that's the romantic comedy. Uh, but now you have targeted an audience where you can focus this movie on where our vegans, vegetarians, paleo people, people who are interested in, in plant-based diets – that kind of niche because it's a very powerful niche. It's a very lucrative niche. And and if you're passionate about it, like if you're if you're a meat eater and you're doing this for the money, you're not gonna make this work. Um, so you gotta be passionate about the kind of story you're trying to tell as an artist. But if you're able to align those, you're now connecting with an audience at an emotional level. And I'll use an example. I wanted to see a movie called Game Changers, which was a documentary about vegan athletes that, that popped up on Netflix. I'd heard about this probably six months prior and it James Cameron produced it, Arnold Schwarzenegger is in it, all this kind of stuff. And every other piece of content in my world just disappeared because my focus was on that because I was emotionally connected to that content. So I sought it out, I, I rented it, I paid for it, and then I watched it again on Netflix because it was something very emotional to me. If you can tap into that emotion of an audience, it's more powerful than any amount of marketing you can do. This is the faith-based world. This is uh, horror films, uh, 80s horror films, depending on the niche and like horror. I, so yeah, I, I would say, Alex, what you're describing to me is is sounds like just good marketing, right? And it feels well, like maybe I'm not what you're yet. advocating is thinking like a producer before you decide what movie you want to make, 
right? Because well, you have well, yeah, you have to coming up with a concept that markets itself, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, 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 you're coming that, up- that targets a, a niche. Uh, yeah, market. and and what I love about that though, Alex, is that I think that your point is really apt. That like I think when you're growing up as a young filmmaker, you're like, ah, this is the story I was born to tell, right? <laughs> Sure. And and look, maybe that, maybe the story that you were born to tell coincides with what the world needs to hear and the and uh, a clean way to get it out to them, right? Maybe you're, you know, Ryan Coogler and Fruitvale Station is the story you were born to tell, and then you're you're good to go, right? But mm-hmm. I think that for every Ryan Coogler, there's a million other people who are like, ah, you mm-hmm. know, it's like a a boy meets girl story. But I would mm-hmm. argue that like this vegan chef idea is just you're basically just advocating for like have a a stronger idea for a movie yeah i mean it does sound like a different way of saying make a fresh movie something that we haven't seen so yes and no because the quality of the film is almost irrelevant it depends on your audience so if you're making an 80s slasher movie that is paying homage to the 80s slasher films quality in your eye or my eye might be very different than to that core audience who might might like the mistakes that are made might like that uh, i use in the book a, a movie called pool party massacre who shot over a year the temperature like it's a pool party and they're shooting in the winter it took them it took them a year to shoot this thing hair lengths changed you know tanning things changed yeah but alex like let's be realistic here like i'm sure just like you we get multiple emails a week of people pitching themselves to be on our podcast Uh uh-huh sure and many of them have made bad 80s slasher films Mm -hmm. that nobody has seen that they tell us are on amazon prime as an as if that's impressive because everyone knows anyone can put their movie on amazon prime sure um, and they're not making their money back. They're not because being they're successful. not because like, not being smart about it. So let me explain how how that eighty slasher movie makes money. So first of all, you keep your budget as low as humanly possible. Like any product, any business, keep your overhead low. So the lower you can make a quality product, that's going to be uh, something that's going to. Uh, hit the target audience, if that's a $3,000 or that's $300,000, it all depends on the audience and the kind of story you're trying to tell and the kind of product you're trying to create for that audience. Secondly, you could do one of two things. You could either tap into an existing audience or be building that audience for a while. So if you're a horror director building a horror brand around either a company, a brand, or yourself, then you all automatically have an audience that you can start funneling things out to as you're creating. You're building a sustainable business. Now, how Pool Party Massacre made- and Can you're, you build that before yes, you've ever made a movie? Absolutely. So, it t- But this is a long play, guys. This is a this is a building a business thing, and this isn't the sexy part of being a filmmaker. The sexy part is the new lenses, the new the area Alexa coming out. I'm gonna be on set. I'm gonna be the big shot. That's all awesome, and I've been there. I've done that. But if you're trying to build a career that's sustainable and can sustain itself in a situation like this, right now the studios have shut down. There is no work. But if you've been able to build this business out for yourself, you're still able to generate revenue from your art. I'm making money with my movies right now. Every day I'm making money with my content. I'm making money with my movies, regardless of what's happening in the Hollywood system. Can you talk about how meaningful that money is on a month to month basis? It supports my house. It supports my family. It's a, I, I, this is my full-time job and I live in Los Angeles. The money from your films pays your mortgage? Yes. But when you say money from your films, 
You mean money from the businesses that have sprouted out of your film. So this is the difference. I'll use Pool Party Massacre, how he was able to make money with his movies. He was able to not only build out his audience, his horror audience, which because he's a horror director. So he already started building out his audience. He understood his niche audience extremely well, the people who are interested in 80 slasher films. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then now he started creating product lines around it. So obviously hats and t-shirts, that's low-hanging fruit. But then he started thinking outside the box. Oh, well, what what does my audience really like? Well, they love physical media. So what do they do? He went out to thrift shops bought every VHS, clam VHS uh, case that he could that was from the old Disney clam case uh, movies like Mm -hmm. Pinocchio and all that stuff, came home, recorded his movie over those movies, replaced the insert and put a new tag on and sold it as a limited edition VHS of his movie. And he got the artist from uh, an artist who used to do uh, cover art from the 80s to do his cover art. So it looks like an, I mean, he understood his audience so well that when the audience started seeing his product, people thought it was an 80s movie they had not seen yet. That's how good of it he was. So he started creating those products. Then he started creating other ancillary products that were just aimed at the niche, like I love horror indie hats and t-shirts and lunch boxes and things like that. Then what does he do? He not only just sells it online, he goes to horror conventions where all of his audience are hanging out. He sets up a booth. He's making two, three thousand, four thousand, five thousand dollars a weekend. So if you're able to sell a DVD and a t-shirt selling other merch though no no movie and other merch so merch based off his movie and his movie itself so if he packages out a dvd and a t-shirt for 35 bucks Mm -hmm. i don't care where the 35 bucks came from sure there's a ton of case studies in the book there was a movie called back sick and nearly dead i don't know if you ever heard of it it's a a Mm -hmm. documentary on juicing basically that guy has built an entire empire around one movie where now he gives the movie away for free because he wants to get you into his ecosystem and provide value to that audience. So he sells juicers, he sells uh, uh, services, he sells um, uh, videos, all these other things wrapped around the movie. It's basically what Disney was doing back in 1937 with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and with Mickey Mouse. He, they're right. still doing that. But now this is at a indie level. And I lay out all of these tools are that are every day that all filmmakers can get a hand on and start generating revenue. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm with you 100% of the way up until a very mm-hmm. specific threshold, right? Certainly like smart audience building, social media campaigns, going toward your audience like list, email, list. email lists, merchandise, all of that stuff, right? Like that's how Warren and I both mm-hmm. got our starts doing that exact stuff. Like mm-hmm. I was on mm-hmm. Tumblr every goddamn day for three years mm-hmm. straight building an audience for Squaresville so that they were mm-hmm. ready to rock and roll and buy my t-shirts and like get autographed posters and go to the VidCon signing and all of that stuff. That's all filmmaking. That's all smart producing, right? Mm-hmm. And, I invented YouTube, sold sure, it to right. Google. And and mm-hmm. then I think there is like a certain threshold where, and I think Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead is probably a good example of this, where you shift from being a smart producer slash filmmaker into mm-hmm. just a person who's a motivational speaker or who uh, or a business uh, e- a business e- a b- business person an e-commerce person and it can be smart business to to basically have content as your loss leader like content marketing right is a, the concept mm-hmm. of basically giving away it's like what our podcast is effectively right giving mm-hmm. away our mm-hmm. expertise to then drive sales for hard goods that people are used to but at a certain point you're a business person and and not a filmmaker like i think we all are 100 percent in agreement that like you have to wear both hats 
right? But at mm-hmm. a certain point, you're just wearing that right, businessman. Right. What percentage hat. of your time are you spending making merch? right, right? Or 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 when you take the st- I think even making your own merch, I think is super rad, right? And all that DIY stuff, like the horror stuff that you were describing mm-hmm. before, that's awesome. There's a step where it's just like I just have an e-commerce store, right? Then there's a smarter business to be had. Then you should just go do real estate because, like, well, maybe not now. But, uh, but you know, like there are other um, <laughs> smart businesses to be in, you know, and where, where is the line for each person? Well, no, th- this is the thing, guys. This is a mindset difference. Everything I've talked about is part of the creative process for myself. When I write a book, when I, when I create content, when I create a podcast, when I create video content, um, when I create behind the scenes of my films or things, I create, I, that's all part of my creative process for me personally. Um, George Lucas is a great example because George Lucas is a film entrepreneur. George Lucas is, an, is one of the biggest independent filmmakers of all time, essentially. He leveraged the studio system uh, to get a start, which was he did with Star Wars. But after that, he's basically on his own and he just used the studio system to do whatever he wanted to do. So he went off and built an entire business to the point where when he wanted to, he made the he made well first of all he financed empire then he financed return of the jedi had complete creative control and all of that stuff and then he did it again 10 and but the point is he built a business to support his creative output so when he decided to do the prequels for better or worse he wrote a check for those independent films for himself and he did them the way he wanted to do without any control. So you just have to ask yourself the question, what camp do you want to be in? Do you want to be in a camp where you might have to take a year or two or three to set your business up as a filmmaker, as a brand, to be able to justify further creative output outside of this? There's a perfect mm-hmm. example of a guy. Uh, well, Tyler Perry is a great example. But look at Mark Harris, who's a, another filmmaker who did these. He understood his niche audience, which was going to be African-American uh, audience in his local town in Chicago, like in, in his local area. And he went out and now he has 20 or 25 films he's done over the last 10 years. And he owns the rights to all of them. He licenses them out to different streaming services, BT, all these other places. He built out uh, multiple revenue streams coming in from his movies. So he's able to be a businessman, be and, and still make a movie or two a year while building everything else out. It took him a little bit at the beginning to build out, but now he's looking for a back lot to start building out. He supports not only his family, but many families and many crew people around him that he constantly uses again and again. I'm looking for freedom. Freedom is going to take work. If you want to work in the system, if you want to work inside of somebody else's sandbox, you're going to have to play by their rules. And sometimes if even if you're allowed in to play in the sandbox, you're going to play by their rules. So what I'm proposing is to create your own sandbox, create something that's sustainable long term for yourself to give you the freedom to do whatever you want. So like my last movie I shot which was called On the Corner of Ego and Desire, I shot in 4 days at the Sundance Film Festival and shot it for about 3000 bucks. And it was designed for my audience, which are independent filmmakers and content creators. People are interested in my world. So I built this whole movie around them and I've been making money. I made money with that movie before I ever even released it. It took me two years to release because I was so busy doing so many other things um, that, and also waiting to see if Sundance would accept it, but that's a other, other story altogether. Um, <laughs> Wait, how, how do you make money off that movie? Um, this book. Rise of the Film Entrepreneur. Rise of the Film Entrepreneur book, podcast, that I talk about the book. Uh, no, I mean the, the movie specifically, the, the Corner of Ego and Desire. That's what I'm talking about. Those pieces of content were based on the movie. 
So that's just a mindset difference. You're looking at it only from the point of actually exploiting the film to make it generating revenue. I'm exploiting the film in a different way outside of the normal way of doing things. And because of that, I'm able to generate revenue from my films, not just from the exploitation of it, the rental or access to it, but from multiple other revenue streams that I'm able to control. So I've been able to, because I've been doing this now for five years, I've built up an audience, I've built up an infrastructure, a business where I can can't just fun, like if I make another movie tomorrow, I can just mm-hmm. pop it into my system and I could just keep going and I could keep doing it. And I'm free to do whatever I want, whenever I want. I answer to no one. And that is the dream as filmmakers. And I don't have to be a multimillionaire. Mm-hmm. You know, Mark Harris is not a multimillionaire as, as a director. He does well. He makes good money. He supports his family. At the end of the day, if what's your number every year you've got to hit as a filmmaker? Is it $50,000 a year? Is it $150,000 a year? Is that how much you need to do your art full time and support your family or yourself? And that's the number you should be hitting for. And then once you hit that number, you're free. It's financial freedom in the entertainment space. And if you're able to do that, great. And then you could build it up. And th- that's how Tyler Perry started. He started before he ever made um, A Diary of an Angry Black Woman. He was hustling his plays. He was he was on the Chitlin circuit, going places to places, putting on shows, making his money, trying to get things done. And it took him years to build it up. But now, right, right. now look but, at him. But the difference is he is making plays. He's not making merch he's not going to video stores and buying every clamshell he's not writing vegan cookbooks like i'm willing to meet you in the middle because i actually think one of my favorite stories from your book which you haven't mentioned yet is that your first kind of accidental discovery of this whole idea of the film entrepreneur (laughs) was that you made this short film and it was in the days before youtube before you know Mm -hmm. video copilot and Uh, no film school and all these amazing film resources and you made this behind the scenes like hey this is how I pulled off my short film like you very similar to Rebel Without a Crew right the Robert Rodriguez book that Mm -hmm. at the time every single person read Um, Mm -hmm. and you sold this course of like how you can be a filmmaker you know on Mm -hmm. a limited budget too and and so to me like that idea I really like and that is I think the part of film entrepreneurship that Matt and I subscribe to, like we have a podcast where we talk about filmmaking. We sell merch, all of that stuff. Like we are on board a hundred percent. I think that Mm -hmm. there's just like a, but, but it's not a revenue play. It's a, it's, we enjoy things outside of filmmaking that uh, make us better filmmakers. You know, I think we both have kind of mainstream sensibilities. We love to make mainstream things. Look, I'm older than when I started doing this. Right. I have a family. I have a mortgage. I have a kid and all that stuff. Like I very much care about the revenue and I look 30 years in the future and think I'm not going to, you know, fight 25 year olds for commercial jobs every day at that point. Correct. How do I make this a sustainable career? That is on my mind. But separately from that, my dream is to work with the best actors in the world, the best sure. EPs in the world, the mm-hmm. best locations in the world. And you don't, get the best actors in the world on a $3,000 movie, right? So to to surround myself with the best artists in their field, the best costume designers, best makeup artists, all that stuff, I don't want to spend 50% of my time figuring out ancillary revenue streams for the work I'm doing. I think there's also a question of like, at a certain point, expertise becomes 
uh, a resource that you we all have to have right like i think we're we're all lucky enough to have come up in an era where you can figure out how to run a merch store and and e-commerce and build a awesome website and master all of those things right but at a certain mm-hmm. point right distribution distribution being maybe my favorite example of this that's a relationship built system right like it's really who you know is how distributors really on this level get these deals made and the problem is yes that the the whole system is broken but the bigger issue is that because revenue is so much smaller the cracks are more apparent mm-hmm. right like if everybody mm-hmm. was making mm-hmm. two hundred thousand dollar mgs then no one's going to be like wait a minute why this is kind of dumb right you just you cash your check and you go home and you make another movie um but so distribution being the best example of like learning how to deliver a movie properly right and then learn how learning how to market it accurately and like to the exact right psychographic and to bankroll all of that and then also spend say you know five years building a, a long-term uh, marketing plan and building a, a grassroots audience that's all time that you're spending not making movies and at a certain point mm-hmm. you're trading your ability to become a better filmmaker to become a better business person and i think that that maybe is the thing that we're all struggling against right i strongly disagree with that concept because as a filmmaker you like mark harris is a perfect example that he's popping out two movies three movies a year while he's building out his business right so he's not but is he becoming a better filmmaker at the same time like if he's made 25 films why is he not at the Tyler Perry level yet, like where Tyler Perry was, but the, 10, the, but, you're, five but, years but ago. you're assuming something, guys. You're assuming that everybody wants to be at the Tyler Perry level. You want you're assuming that everybody wants to work with the greatest DPs and the greatest actors in the world. Is that a dream? Sure, and make millions uh, of yeah. dollars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of all of us. Yeah, essentially. Look, I don't think anybody listening wouldn't take an, a, a meeting with Marvel or with Warner's or with Disney or any of that stuff. That's great to have that aspiration and to want to do that. And if that is one of the main reasons why you're in this game, then man, go down that road, but understand what the rules of that road are. Because the, the business is changing so drastically that you might be left behind or you might have other issues like what's going on right now. Like if your whole right. revenue stream is based around doing t- television or doing uh, or doing working for the studios, when the studios are not there, like it's happening right now and you have no revenue, God forbid this doesn't last for the next six months. But imagine if the next six months, for whatever godforsaken reason, Hollywood is shut down and the entire industry goes away. Alex, I, I think what you're saying is just the dark side of the thing that I think Orin and I signed up for. Right. Is that like, right. and I, you have to be the best I signed up for and, too. and competition yeah. is stiff, right? And it's quite depressing <laughs> at various times. We all can't be Chris Nolan. We all can't be David Fincher. I would love to be at the level of David Fincher as a filmmaker. There's so many goddamn more people than, than David Fincher and Steven Spielberg. Sure. And Chris sure. Nolan. And most of our peers, I would argue, are making a great living like in, in significant creative fields. We know a shit ton of directors. And look, you know, yeah, day to day, sometimes they're like, yeah, I'm on the top of the world. And sometimes they're like, ah, I haven't worked in a while, right? Right. I think that there is a, a difference between someone who is hustling and a purely independent level, right? And a person mm-hmm. who gets mm-hmm. to, like, I, I would put myself in this category. Like, I direct big commercials. 
you know, I do plenty mm-hmm. of like scripted series. I do stuff that you've heard of. I've done shorts that cost me $500 and like hopefully mm-hmm. like play a couple festivals. But I think that mm-hmm. that that there's certainly plenty of space for working class directors to be doing episodes of television, you know, li- living well and, you know, making movies and and commercials and content in a meaningful way and not be Christopher Nolan. And that is like an important, absolutely. It's, there's not Agreed. such a huge chasm. Like most of the people that I know live in that sweet spot. But you also live in Los Angeles. Sure. And you are working in the studio system or working in and around the studio system or in Hollywood sure. regardless. So your perspective is a lot different than someone that like myself who came from Miami. Yeah, but Alex, you've been here for like 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you know what? But the point but the point is this. Look, the perspective is that, yeah, I, I know a lot of guys who are making a living in the business as well. But how many like let's let's throw a number out. How many working directors in the studio system are there? Ten thousand? Sure. 20,000? Let's, let's say, yeah, 10, 20,000. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, commercials to me are, are very much outside the studio system. Right. So, com- so commercials. And, 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 and they exist all over the world, too. Exactly. Like in every state. Exactly. So commercials and music videos aside, you know, but let's just say within. Well, but you don't make a living from music videos. Not so commercials anymore. Commercials you can make a living. Not anymore. Not anymore. But I'll argue to say that commercials eventually are starting to. To, to, look, I was a commercial director for a long time as well. And I remember when the budgets were a lot better than they are now. Um, you know, it all depends right. on the client. I mean, now there's branded content and other things. There's other, the, yeah, the, it, it's different. morphed into Back many then there wasn't, things. you know, internet content or streaming content. Netflix yeah, there's, there's, there's always so many new, buyers it, out there. There's always yeah, new exactly. things. There's exactly. So much shifting. exactly. There's, it's always shifting. The whole, the whole business shifting. So let's say there's 20,000 working directors who are capable of working in doing the studio system that are making and are that making, are supporting their family they're supporting their family let's say there's 20,000 directors out of uh, how okay. many more are trying to get in is the question how many more are leaving and how many more are getting in because that that is I, a finite and I, number I guess ultimately what I'm saying Alex is bring it do you know what I mean like I'd but, rather but that's the point but, uh, but I've seen so many filmmakers who brought it and I'm like oh, dude I get it dude I've been in that fight with you guys I get it I understand completely like Let's do this. Let's like, you know, let's see who the best, you know, let's, it's Mad Max. Let's see who the best, sure. the best man or woman win. I get that with the competition. If you're good, you're going to get seen. What I'm proposing is another option. It's another way. It doesn't negate the way that you guys are walking. I, and, it, and I've walked that path as well. I'm just trying to create something a little bit different. I'm trying to create something that I control and I'm not reliant on an outside source right. for my income, for my revenue, for my livelihood. I'm trying to create something of my own as a filmmaker. So now I, once I understood what I was trying to do and I did it, the amount of freedom that I feel is, is it, it's, there's no price on it. And as a filmmaker, like I said, I can go out tomorrow and make a movie and, and I can pay for that movie on my own. Will it be a half a million dollar movie? No. But will it be a movie that I can express myself as an artist? Yeah. Will it be the best director or the best DPs, best actors in the world? No. But the more of that stuff that I do, I start getting at, I start getting, um, it's funny, man. And I'm sure you guys have felt this as well. Ever since I launched the podcast, I get access to people and people reach out to me that I would have never in a million years been able to get access to. Uh, and doing the kind of work that I do, opportunities present themselves that weren't there before because I've taken this time. You know, and it, it is what I've created with my business. It has a tremendous amount of value, even in the eyes of the industry. 
And I know a lot of industry people. I work in the industry still. I, I still do, you know, shows and streaming services, streaming series and stuff like that. But I much rather when, when those jobs come, I take them. But when I when they're not there, I'm good. I'm solid. And that's all I'm kind of proposing is just another route to walk. And can you walk both? I think you can. Personally, I think there is a way to do that. There are other filmmakers who are making a living using the film entrepreneurial model. And some go full force into the business side. And like, you know what? I understand this niche, like fast, sick, and nearly dead. Like I'm, I'm the juice guy. I'm going to build an entire business around juicing and I'm good. And that's fine if he wants to go down that road. Like that's not something I would do. I can't do something like that. Um, but building a not business a guy, around- you like chewing too I'm, much. I like chewing too much. It's exactly yeah. it. Uh, but but I'm not, I don't want to go into that. But there's so many other filmmakers that I use as case studies who have been able to build out sustainable businesses doing what they love to do. If you're aiming at the top level of any industry, that's going to be a really small group of people and a really narrow doorway. I'm trying to widen the doorway for people to be happy in what they're doing at whatever level they're at in whichever part of the world they're at. And I've used examples, um, my Ugandan um, brother who built an entire industry. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 